What a complex, dense and eye-opening novel that really expresses the paranoia and confusion of the Second World War. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today I'm discussing the first half of July's book, Gravity's Rainbow. Each month I take a book, split it in two and discuss it on the second and last Fridays. I'd love to know your thoughts on the book so far. Leave a comment below or if you're listening to the podcast, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to page 455 of Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon, published in 1973. Part 3, section 8, the paragraph starting, A Soft Night. I'm going to read through a summary of the first half, be aware there may be spoilers, only up to 50% though. So we start off with Captain Jeffrey Pirate Prentice. He's watching a V2 vapour trail from the top of his unit's headquarters. He and a colleague, Teddy Bloat, discuss that it must have malfunctioned and Teddy makes a joke. Quote, cheer up, Teddy crawling back toward the busted cot. There'll be more. Good old bloat, always the positive word. Pirate for a few seconds there, waiting to talk to Stanmore, was thinking. Danger's over, banana breakfast is saved. But it's only a reprieve, isn't it? There will indeed be others, each just as likely to land on top of him. No one either side of the front knows exactly how many more. Pirate is cultivating bananas at the headquarters. And he has to go to Greenwich to see his employer. On the way, we learn that, quote, certain episodes he dreamed could not be his own. It seems like he can almost mind read. We see Achtung, which stands for the Allied Clearing House Technical Units, Northern Germany, and Tandivi and Slothrop, whose American work there. Slothrop is scared of the new German V2 bombs that travel faster than the speed of sound. Quote, you never hear the one that gets you. And Slothrop says, quote, it could happen any time. The next second, right, just suddenly, just zero, just nothing. And the narrator says, it's nothing he can see or lay hands on. Sudden gases, a violence upon the air, and no trace afterward. A word spoken with no warning into your ear, and then silence forever, beyond its invisibility, beyond hammerfall and doom crack. Here is its real horror, mocking, promising him death with German and precise confidence, laughing down all of Tantivy's quiet decencies. No, no bullet with fins, ace, not the word, the one word that rips apart the day. We have a history of the Slothrops through Tyrone's recollection of their tombstones. He remembers a meteor shower and looking up to see lights, and he compares it to looking up for bombs. Then we move to Jessica Swanlake and Milton Gloaming having a seance as the bombs fall. It's related in some way to the war effort, but it's a bit obscured so far. Pirate relays a fling with Scorpia, a married woman. He felt, at 33, that life was going by him. Quote, if it can't be you, there's no more time. He's truly heartbroken, poor chap. We hear how Roger, a colleague of Prentice, seduced Jessica as she was trying to fix her bicycle. And Roger tells her, quote, the war is my mother. We hear that Roger is the statistician on the side section. The others are, quote, wild talents, clairvoyants and mad magicians, telekinetics, astral travellers, gatherers of light. Roger's only a statistician, never had a prophetic dream, never sent or got a telepathic message, never touched the other world directly. And it's interesting this, because even today, I think there are certain government agencies that are purchasing tools that can do things like dousing for human body parts. It still goes on. Continuing the narrative, Roger and Pointsman are in a bombed building where Pointsman is trying to extract saliva from a dog for, quote, experimentation. The dog escapes and Roger worries that the doctor wants to, quote, branch out. He thinks he wants to experiment on him. That is Roger. The book shows the lengths a country will go to fight a war, even outside the, quote, actual theatre, i.e. the battlefields. They're clutching for anything that will swing the odds, even experimenting on dogs. Or is this an outlet for something darker and more sinister? I guess we'll find out. Dr. Spectro seems a very scary character. There's such fabulous writing in this book so far. Listen to this description of Victorian architecture. 
quote, they're approaching now a lengthy brick improvisation, a Victorian paraphrase of what once long ago resulted in Gothic cathedrals, but which in its own time arose not from any need to climb through the fashioning of suitable confusions towards any apical god, but more in a derangement of aim, a doubt as to the god's actual locus, or in some way as to its very existence out of a cruel network of sensuous moments that could not be transcended and so bent the intentions of the builders not on any zenith but back to fright to simple escape in whatever direction from what the industrial smoke street excrement windowless warrens shrugging leather forests of drive belts flowing and patient shadow states of the rats and flies were saying about the chances for mercy that year now Roger and Jessica see the Pavlovian doctor Kevin Spectro at this building. It's the hospital of St Veronica. Pavlovs was fascinated by the ideas of the opposite. Quote, imagine a missile one hears approaching only after it explodes. The reversal, a piece of time neatly snipped out, a few feet of film run backwards, the blast of the rocket fallen faster than sound, then growing out of it, the roar of its own fall, catching up to what's already death and burning, a ghost in the sky. And we'll look more at these symmetrical reversals later. They discuss how Slothrop has this ability to, quote, see the bombs coming days in advance. A bit like a Pavlovian response. And Pointsman is jealous of Spectro's human subjects and wants Slotherop as his subject. Quote, what I want is one of your fine foxes, i.e. humans. Pointsman is very different to the statistician Mexico, who reminds him of the, quote, Monte Carlo fallacy. No matter how many have fallen inside a particular square, the odds remain the same as they always were. Each hit is independent of all the others. Bombs are not dogs. No link, no memory, no conditioning. This brilliantly encapsulates the battle between science and the human condition. You could argue that gravity in the title is science and the rainbow is maybe human. Gravity is like the scientific, Roger Mexico, and rainbow is the more spiritual human side represented by Princeton and the Pavlovian psychic bunch. Slotherup is transferred to St Veronica's. He imagines or remembers dropping his harmonica in a toilet and a series of strange fantasies ensue. We learn he's a Harvard graduate. In 1925, LeFroyd escaped from the White Visitation, which is the British unit of psychological warfare, and jumped off a cliff to visit, quote, the Lord of the Sea. We hear how Brigadier Pudding started the White Visitation. Quote, he found a disused hospital for the mad, a few token lunatics, an enormous pack of stolen dogs, cliques of spiritualists, vaudeville entertainers, wireless technicians, cuists, Uspenskians, Skinnerites, lobotomy enthusiasts, Dale Carnegie zealots, all exiled by the outbreak of war from pet schemes and manias damned, had the peace prolonged itself to differing degrees of failure, but their hopes now focusing on Brigadier Pudding and possibilities for funding. Again, humans will go to any length, even anti-science, when they are desperate. We hear about Dr. Yamp's research into conditioned responses in young humans. And we see Slotherup's map. The stars represent where he has had sexual relationships. The stars are, quote, that emblem of classroom success which so permeates elementary education in America. It's the map that spooks them all, the map Slotherup's been keeping on his girls. The stars fall in a Poisson distribution, just like the rocket strikes on Roger Mexico's map of the robot blitz. But, well, it's a bit more than the distribution. The two patterns also happen to be identical. They match up square for square. The slides that Teddy Bloat's been taking of Slotherup's map have been projected onto Roger's, and the two images, girl stars, are rocket strike circles demonstrated to coincide. Helpfully, Slotherup has dated most of his stars. A star always comes before its corresponding rocket strike. The strike can come as quickly as two days or as slowly as ten. The mean lag is about four and a half days. The narrator goes on. But the stimulus somehow must be the rocket. Some precursor wraith. Some rockets double present for Slotherup in the percentage of smiles on a bus. Menstrual cycles being operated upon in some mysterious way. What does make the little doxies do it for free? Are there fluctuations in the sexual market, in pornography or prostitutes, perhaps tying into prices on the stock exchange itself? 
that we clean living lot know nothing about. There are arguments from a Rolo Gross who thinks Slotherop's knowledge of where the bombs will drop is precognition, and Edwin Treacle who thinks that he's causing the rockets to fall in certain places with his mind. We're introduced to Katya, who is being filmed. Quote, she is corruption and ashes, she belongs in a way none of them can guess, cruelly to the oven, to der Kinderofen, remembering now his teeth, long, terrible, veined with bright brown rot as he speaks these words, the yellow teeth of Captain Bolicero, the network of stained cracks, and back in his night breath, in the dark oven of himself, always the coiled whispers of decay. How chilling, proper Hansel and Gretel upbringing. And what is this horrible oven? So this Captain Blacaro offered up Katya and possibly her, quote, brother, Gottfried, to this oven in the past. He seems to be some kind of witch doctor, certainly some very strange corruption of the Hansel and Gretel story. There's a really beautiful description of London in this section, quote, outside the long rain in silicon and freezing descent smacks, desolate, slowly corrosive against the medieval windows, curtaining like smoke the river's far shore. This city, in all its bomb-pierced miles, this inexhaustibly knotted victim, skin of glistening roof slates, sooted brick flooded high about each window, dark or lit, each of a million openings, vulnerable to the gloom of this winter day. The rain washes, drenches, fills the gutters singing. The city receives it, lifting in a perpetual shrug. We learn that Katya is a member of the British intelligence, or a Dutch spy, She's captured near a rocket testing centre and is helping to, quote, sniff out crypto Jews. We learn of how her ancestors deliberately killed off the dodos in Mauritius. And it's interesting how one lone madman can wipe out a whole population. It reminds me of Hitler and his programme of extermination in World War II. Continuing the narrative, Osby and Pirate look out over London and there's more beautiful descriptions of London. Quote, Pirate and Osby feel are leaning on their roof ledge. Magnificent sunset across and up the winding river. The imperial serpent, crowds of factories, flats, parks, smoky spires and gables, incandescent sky casting downward across the miles of deep streets and roofs cluttering and sinuous river Thames, a drastic stain of burnt orange to remind a visitor of his mortal transience here, to seal or empty all the doors and windows in sight to his eyes that look only for a bit of company, a word or two in the street before he goes up to the soap-heavy smell of the rented room and the squares of coral sunset on the floorboards, an antique light, self-absorbed, fuel consumed in the metered winter holocaust, the more distant shapes among the threads or sheets of smoke, now perfect ash ruins of themselves, nearer windows, struck a moment by the sun, not reflecting at all, but containing the same destroying light, this intense fading in which there is no promise of return, light that rusts the government cars at the curbsides, varnishes the last faces hurrying past the shops in the cold, as if a vast siren had finally sounded, light that makes chilled, untravelled canals of many streets, and that fills with the starlings of London, converging by millions to hazy stone pedestals, to emptying squares and a great collective sleep. They flow in rings, concentric rings, on the radar screens the operators call them angels. They chat about the white visitation, quote, do you know what they have in mind down there? Only that they're brewing up something that involves a giant octopus, but no one up here in London knows with any precision. Continuing the narrative, quote, there's this sudden great coming and going and a swampy ambiguity as to why. I'm thinking, you're telling me, I'd quite like to know exactly why. This octopus no doubt will be put to some psychological use in averting the German onslaught. Now, Grigory is the name of the octopus, and he's shown the film shot at the beginning of the chapter of Katya walking around the house. Quote, the reel is threaded, the lights are switched off, Grigory's attention is directed to the screen where an image already walks. The camera follows as she moves deliberately nowhere, long-legged about the rooms. An adolescent wideness and hunching to the shoulders, her hair not bluntly Dutch at all, but secured in a modish upsweep with an old tarnished silver crown. Slotherup returns to the Achtung headquarters from the white visitation. He doesn't know why. He tastes loads of English candies or what 
us Brits call sweets, including wine candies, which here are called wine gums. He has sex with Darlene and then is woken by a bomb. What a surprise. Sloth Mick's romantic encounter with Darlene has pinpointed where a bomb will fall. We've got a very blue and romantic chapter with Roger and Jessica. My word, it gets steamy, folks. We learn how he met her. She's confused about her love for Roger and Jeremy. She, quote, trips fussing about the dormitory, bothering other girls for puffs of stale woodbines, nylon repair kits, sparrow bright war, wisecracks, passing for sympathy. Tonight she'll be with Jeremy, her lieutenant, but she wants to be Roger. Except that really she doesn't, does she? She can't remember ever being so confused. When she's with Roger, it's all love, but at any distance, any at all. Jack, she finds he depresses and even frightens her. Poor Jessica, what a confusion for her. She goes on to ponder whether it's safer with Jeremy. And they go to a Christmas church service together. Quote, the church is as cold as the night outside. There's the smell of damp wool, of bitter on the breaths of these professionals, of candle smoke and melting wax, of smothered farting, of hair tonic, of the burning oil itself, folding the other odours in a maternal way, more closely belonging to earth, to deep strata, other times, and listen, listen. This is the war's evensong, the war's canonical hour, and the night is real. The narrator continues to describe the congregation. Quote, the children are always dreaming, but the empire has no place for dreams and it's adults only in here tonight. Here in this refuge, with the lamps burning deep in pre-Cambrian exhalation, savoury as food cooking, heavy as soot, and 60 miles up, the rockets hanging the measureless instant over the black North Sea before the fall, even faster to orange heat, Christmas star in helpless plunged earth. Here the narrator is comparing the rockets to the Christmas star. Pointsman opines the death of his friends and now Dr. Kevin Spector from a V2 bomb. And another pin on the map. Pointsman thinks, pin? Not even that. A pinhole in paper that someday will be taken down when the rockets have stopped their falling or when the young statistician chooses to end his count. Paper to be hauled away by the charwoman, torn up, burned. And there's more information about this mysterious book. Why not renounce the book then, Ned? Give it up. That's all the obsolescent date of the master's isolated moments of poetry. It's paper, that's all. You don't need it. The book and its terrible curse before it's too late. If you remember, it's mentioned previously at the White Visitation, quote, Spectro is one of the original seven owners of the book. And if you ask Mr. Pointsman what book, you'll only get smirked at. It rotates the mysterious book among its co-owners on a weekly basis. And this, Roger gathers, is Spectro's week to get dropped in on at all hours. Very mysterious. We do learn that Pointsman is a bit creepy and, quote, women avoid him. The narrator goes on to say, Quote, oh, but how he'd like someday to give them something really to scream about. We need to watch this pointsman. He may commit some horrible crime later on in the novel. He reflects on the bombing, cause and effect and symmetry. Quote, when one event happens after another with this awful regularity, of course, you don't automatically assume that it's cause and effect, but you do look for some mechanism to make sense of it. You probe, you design a modest experiment. He owes Spectro that much. Even if the American's not legally a murderer, he is sick. The etiology ought to be traced, the treatment found. There is, to this enterprise, Pointsman knows, a danger of seduction because of the symmetry. He's been led before, you know, down the garden path by symmetry, in certain test results, in assuming that a mechanism must imply its mirror image. Irradiation, for example, and reciprocal induction. And who'd ever said that either had to exist? Perhaps it will be so this time too, but how it haunts him, the symmetry of these two secret weapons. Outside, out in the blitz, the sounds of V1 and V2, one the reverse of the other. Pavlov showed how mirror images inside could be confused, ideas of the opposite. But what new pathology lies outside now? What sickness to events? The history itself can create symmetrical opposites like these robot weapons. There's that symmetry again, which we'll look at later. He goes on exploring, quote, outside with a capital O, and I guess this is what I believe is what I think maybe the world as lived and experienced outside the mind. 
and he talks about inside with a capital I, what I believe perhaps is the interior or psychological, perhaps the spiritual world. What do you think? There's this quote, signs and symptoms across spectro right could outside and inside be part of the same field if only in fairness in fairness pointsman ought to be seeking the answer at the interface oughtn't he on the cortex of lieutenant slothrop the man will suffer perhaps in some clinical way be destroyed but how many others tonight are suffering in his name for pity's sake every day in whitehall they're weighing and taking risks that make his in this seem almost trivial almost there's something here too transparent and swift to get a hold on side section might speak of ectoplasms but he knows that the time has never been better and that the exact experimental subject is in his hands he must seize now or be doomed to the same stone hallways whose termination he knows but he must remain open even to the possibility that the side people are right we may all be right he puts in his journal tonight so may all have speculated and more Whatever we may find, there can be no doubt that he is physiologically, historically a monster. We must never lose control. The thought of him lost in the world of men after the war fills me with a deep dread I cannot extinguish. So Pointsman is clearly desperate to experiment on poor Slothrop's cortex. I'm reminded of a clockwork orange where the hope is that Alex's inside can be manipulated to create more peaceful outside using cortex training and behavioral learning. Now, Nora Dodson-Truck finds a medium-type person called Carol Eventar speaking German. This is very intriguing. We hear all the wonderful abilities that various members of the White Visitation have. For example, Gavin Trafour can change the colour of his skin. Quote, You can imagine how useful he was to Gerhard von Goll during the shooting of the Schwarzkommando footage. He helped save literally hours of makeup and lighting work, acting as a variable reflector. End quote. A bit like the X-Men there. And Basher St. Blaise sees an angel over Germany and we learn of Peter Sachser, who's a medium, and his love for Lenny Perkler, the wife of a chemical engineer and now a rocket scientist for the war effort. Now Lenny's situation is impoverished. She's in a cramped, roach-ridden and unwelcome student time with Ilza, her daughter. She reflects on how Peter can give her some comfort although he does get into rages. However, quote, Peter's worst infantile rages are still better than most tranquil evenings of her Piscean husband, swimming his seas of fantasy, death wish, rocket mysticism. France is just the type they want. They know how to use that. They know how to use nearly everybody. What will happen to the ones they can't use? End quote. We see Lenny and her friends, they're part of a Berlin revolution and they discuss politics, in particular capitalism. Quote, look at the forms of capitalist expression, pornographies, pornographies of love, erotic love, Christian love, boy and his dog, pornographies of sunsets, pornographies of killing and pornographies of deduction. Ah, that sigh when we guess the murderer. All these novels, these films and songs they lull us with, their approaches, more comfortable and less so to that absolute comfort. A pause to allow Rudy a quick and sour grin. The self-induced orgasm, end quote. Poor Lenny dreams or fantasizes that the Fuhrer announces, I'm sending all the soldiers home. We'll close down the weapon factories. We'll dump all the weapons in the sea. I'm sick of war. I'm sick of waking up every morning afraid I'm going to die. It's suddenly impossible to hate him anymore. He's as human, as mortal now as any of the people. End quote. Can you imagine if that turnaround had actually happened? Now we learn of Franz's entry into rocket science. The narrator thinks, quote, Lenny only wanted him to grow up. What kind of van der Vogel idiocy is it to run around all night in a marsh calling yourself the Society for Space Navigation? The narrator continues, quote, there was never any doubt who was active and who passive. Still, she had hoped he'd grow beyond it. She has talked to psychiatrists. She knows about the German male at puberty. On their backs in the meadows and mountains, watching the sky, masturbating, yearning. Destiny waits, a darkness latent in the texture of the summer wind. Destiny will betray you, crush your ideals, deliver you into the same detestable Berlegekite. That's German for middle class way of life. The same detestable Mbergerlichkeit as your father sucking at his pipe on Sunday strolls after church past the rows of houses by the river. 
dress you in the grey uniform of another family man, and without a whimper you will serve out your time, fly from pain to duty, from joy to work, from commitment to neutrality. Destiny does all this to you. He's obviously a terrible husband to her. We learn that she is Jewish, and perhaps this is why she's being ostracized. There's no milk for her baby, so she goes to Peter Sachs's house, who remembers her lover, and the seance is about to happen. They're retiring to commune with the late foreign minister, Walter Rathenau. And when she arrives, she, quote, is immediately aware of her drab coat and cotton dress, hemline too high, her scuffed and city-dusted shoes, her lack of jewelry, more middle-class reflexes, vestiges, she hopes. She really is impoverished. Now, this Walter Rathenau is a Jewish-German industrialist. He's actually a real-life character. From Wikipedia, it says, quote, writer and liberal politician during the First World War, he was involved in the organization of the German war economy, and after the war, he served as a German foreign minister of the Weimar Republic. He initiated the 1922 Treaty of Rapallo, which removed major obstacles to trading with Soviet Russia, although Russia was already aiding Germany's secret rearmament program. Right-wing nationalist groups branded Rathenau a revolutionary, also resenting his background as a successful Jewish businessman. Two months after the signing of the treaty, Rathenau was assassinated by the right-wing terrorist group organization Consul in Berlin. Some members of the public viewed Rathenau as a democratic martyr. Continuing the narrative of the book, General Director Smarag of the IG branch, which is the Army Inspectorate, and other corporate Nazis are at the seance as well. They're going to ask questions of Rathenau, the former minister. Quote, a gentle sorting out process, reasons of security, end quote. The narrator continues, quote, for something to giggle over among the Heron Club, we even have the Jews' blessing. Whatever comes through the medium tonight, they will warp, they will edit into a blessing. It is a contempt of a rare order, end quote. Peter delivers his thoughts from Rackenau on the other side. The summary is, quote, you must ask two questions. First, what is the real nature of synthesis? And then, what is the real nature of control? You think you know, you cling to your beliefs, but sooner or later you will have to let them go, end quote. The scene is completed by a Nazi asking Rathenau, is God really Jewish? We then move back to London and we meet Gwen Hidwe, who is reflecting that it is the people in the east end of London that seem to be getting all the bombs. Quote, the people out here were meant to go down first. We're expendable. Those in the west end and north of the river are not. Roger and Jessica take her nieces to a performance of Hansel and Gretel, which is interrupted by a rocket explosion. And Penelope, one of the nieces, imagines her father, dead from the war, being returned. She thinks, quote, mothers and fathers are conditioned into deliberately dying in certain preferred ways, giving themselves cancer and heart attacks, getting into motor accidents, going off to fight in the war leaving their children alone in the forest. They'll always tell you fathers are taken, but fathers only leave. That's what it really is. The fathers are all covering for each other. That's all. Now, Roger worries about losing Jessica, inevitably to Beaver or Jeremy, who is, quote, every assertion the war has ever made that we are meant for work and government, for austerity, and these shall take priority over love, dreams, the spirit, the senses, and the other second-class trivia that are found among the idle and mindless hours of the day. He continues, quote, Jeremy will take her like the angel itself in his joyless, weasel-worded come-along, and Roger will be forgotten, an amusing maniac, but with no place in the rationalised power ritual that will be the coming peace. She will take her husband's orders, she will become a domestic bureaucrat, a junior partner, and remember Roger, if at all, as a mistake. Thank God she didn't make. Oh, he feels a raving fit coming on. How the bloomin' hell can he survive without her? He cries to her, quote, Oh, Jess, Jessica, don't leave me. And there ends part one of four. And then we go into part two of four. Amperm o Casino Hermann Goering, which translates to Quote, a furlough at the Hermann Goering Casino. 
So continuing into part two, Slotherop is with Tantivy at the beach and saves a girl from being drowned by a giant octopus. It's Katya that he saved. Now remember, Grigory was being trained by pointsmen by watching films. Teddy Blow just happened to have a crab that he uses to save her, which causes some suspicion. She invites him to her room after midnight. When he arrives, the narrator in typically flowery Pinchonian prose states that, quote, she's at her window, the sea below, and behind her, the midnight sea. Its individual wave flows impossible at this distance to follow, all integrated into the hung stillness of an old painting seen across the deserted gallery where you wait in the shadow, forgetting why you are here. Frightened by the level of illumination, which is from the same blanched scar of moon that wipes the sea tonight. I like how it changes to the second person narration, I and the Slotherop. They have sex, he loses all his clothes and his identity papers in the night, Tantavir is gone and he ends up back in Katya's room and then they have sex again and Pointsman assures the rest of the white visitation that funding won't be cut. Brigadier Pudding has a sordid sex experience with Domina Naturna, who in this case is Katya. Slotherop is shown the blueprints for a German parts list, in particular an insulation device made of imiplex. He tries to get more information from the Shell London office. Quote, here Slotherop stages a brilliant commando raid. It must be some kind of fantasy. He then heads for a party at Rouse. He meets Blodgett Waxwing, a famous forger, and he learns that imiplex G is a plastic and was developed by Laszlo Yamf. Slotherop raids Shelmec's house, possibly in a fantasy, and finds the words, quote, Escarat 11 slash 000000. The narrator continues, if this number is the serial number of a rocket, as its form indicates, it must be a special model. Slotherop hasn't even heard of any with four zeros, let alone five, nor an Escarat either. There's an I and a J Garat. They're in the guidance. Well, document SG1, which isn't supposed to exist, must cover that. Out of the room, going no place special, moving to a slow drum beat in his stomach muscles. See what happens. Be ready. End quote. So it features a mysterious component called the S Garat. And we soon find out that it's short for Schwarzgarat or black device made out of the hitherto unknown plastic Imipolex G. The fact that Yamf trained Slotherup as a youth may be the reason that he's able to predict where the bombs are falling, because they have this Imipolex component. Continuing the narrative, Slotherup is saddened by his friend Oliver Tantivy's death. He begins to suspect he is being monitored and adopts the name Ian Scuffling, a British war correspondent, and escapes from the casino. He goes to Switzerland to visit the Waxwing rep, a Russian named Semyovin. He spends time in cafes watching crowds of businessmen in blue suits, quote, some black skiers who've spent the duration shissing miles of glacier and snow, hearing nothing of campaigns or politics, reading nothing but thermometers and weather vanes, finding their atrocities in avalanches or toppling seracs, their victories in layers of good powder. Slotherup learns that Yamf is dead. He, he begins to get worried that his associates are dying. Incidentally, he's not keen on Swiss skiers. Listen to this, quote, out on the slopes, crisscrossing industriously, purifying and perfecting their fascist ideal of action. Action, action. Once his own shining reason for being. No more. No more. And then we cut to the war is now over and Pointsman is on holiday. There's a fantastic description of an English seaside holiday. Now I'm from England, so this is incredibly accurate. Quote, the weather is not ideal. An overcast, a wind that will be chilly by mid-afternoon, a smell of ozone blows up from the dodgem cars out of the grey steel girder work along the promenade, along with smells of shellfish on the barrows and of salt sea. The pebbled beach is crowded with families, shoeless fathers in lounge suits and high white collars, mothers in blouses and skirts startled out of war-long camphor sleep. Kids running all over in sunsuits, nappies, rompers, short pants, knee socks, eaten hats. There are ice cream, sweets, cokes, cockles, oysters and shrimps with salt and sauce. The pinball machines writhe under the handling of fanatical servicemen and their girls, throwing body English, cursing, groaning as the bright balls drum down the wood obstacle course through kachungs, flashing lights, thudding flippers, the donkeys hee-haw and 
goes to the toilet. The children walk in it and their parents scream. Men sag in striped canvas chairs, talking business, sports, sex, but mostly usually politics, end quote. Brilliant. Now, Pointsman seems to be going a bit loopy. He thinks he needs to get rid of Jessica in order to maintain control of Roger Mexico. And we learn that Schwarzkommando really is operating in Germany. And that the location of Slotherop's sexual encounters and the bomb hits in London is called into question. And here ends part two of the novel. Such a strange and intricate novel. That's my feeling so far. Then we go on to Into the Zone. Slotherop can't stop thinking about Katya as he's on his sojourn in Europe. He sees a girl and, quote, he turned back to her to ask if she really was Katya, the lovely little queen of Transylvania. But the music had run down, she had vaporised from his arms. So he's desperately trying to get to the bottom of this Imipolex contract. And as he's investigating, he recognises a smell from his youth, which he believes could be Imipolex G. He finds himself in Nordhausen, Germany, and his gelly tripping quote, a girl, singing a song. She has some information about the Eskarat or the Schwarzgerat that Slotherop read in the blueprints for Rocket Triple Zero. He learns he can get the Eskarat from, quote, a man in Sveinmunde. And with the help of Geli, Slotherop travels to Mittelwerke. Now, the Wikipedia article for Mittelwerke is quote, German for central works. It was a German World War II factory built underground in the Kornstein to avoid Allied bombing. It used slave labour from the Mittelbaudora concentration camp to produce V2 ballistic missiles, V1 flying bombs and other weapons, end quote. The shape of the tunnels is an elongated SS, also a double integral, and Slotherup is reminded of the Brenschluss point, which is the point at which the burning of a rocket must end, and also the shape of lovers curled asleep. And he thinks of Katya, then he remarks, quote, It's not the gentlemanly reflex that made him edit, switch names, insert fantasies into the yarns he spun for Tantivy back in the Achtung office, so much as the primitive fear of having a soul captured by a likeness of image or by a name. The description of the neglected factory is beautiful. Quote, down here are only wrappings left in the light, in the dark, images of uncertainty. He ends up at Major Marby's going away party and then makes an escape to a castle retreat. Now we learn about the Schwarzkommando and a view on colonialism, more on that later. Mbindi and Enzian discuss suicide and then there's a very interesting view from the Herrero about Christianity and the view of it from the Herrero vantage point. We learn that Enzian is Chicharin's half-brother and he has to go to Hamburg to help out some other zone Herreros. Slotherop and Geli look at, quote, God shadows. She's very witchy. And Slotherop reflects on the witch in his ancestors, Amy Sprue, quote, the family renegade. Slotherop realises that Marvi, Zwitter, who's the mad Nazi scientist, that's not my words, that's the words in the book, and Professor Glimpf, who was only in Mittelwerke to, quote, pick up Slotherop if he showed, wants him, that's Slotherop, for some reason. But he escapes in a hot air balloon with Schnorp, a custard pie salesman. Here it gets really Monty Python. Quote, there are dozens of them. Each contain a deep golden custard pie, which will fetch a fantastic price in Berlin, end quote. They're then chased by Marvy in a plane, and they fight him off by throwing custard pies at his plane. Then we cut to Chicharin, the Soviet officer, quote, with his limp as permanent as gold, end quote. His official role is to recover rocket parts for the Soviets, but his private goal is to kill his half-brother Enzian. Is from the Kyrgyz, and we hear vivid description of this wild country. We hear about his horse, Snake, who is, quote, homicidal, worse. He's unpredictable. When you go to ride him, he may be indifferent or docile as a maiden. But then again, with no warning, seized out of the last ruffling of a great sigh, he could manage to kill you simply as the gesture of a hoof, the serpent tuck of a head toward the exact moment, and spot on the ground that you'll cease to live. No way to tell. For months, he can be no trouble at all, end quote. I thought that was a very interesting comparison that can be made here with the bomb, a technological marvel based on the latest cutting science, but quite honestly, probably equally unpredictable. There's a wonderful description of Wimper 
a chemical scientist who describes the molecules, quote, carbon, the queen, down to hydrogen, the pawns. And then we're given this beautiful description of Chicharin, quote, he has a way of getting together with undesirables, sub-rosa enemies of order, counter-revolutionary odds and ends of humanity. He doesn't plan it, it just happens. He's a giant super molecule with so many open bonds available at any given time and in the drift of things, in the dance of things. Howsoever, others latch on and the pharmacology of the chicharin lust modified, its onwardly revealed side effects can't necessarily be calculated ahead of time. Well, chicharin befriends an opium informatic called Chupiang and there's a discussion on how to create a non-addictive drug that will ease pain with a whimper. Quote, a direct conversion between pain and gold. He attends a plenary session of the NTA, where all the committees are assigned invented alphabetical letters, which is very confusing for Chicharin. There are fights about using a different alphabet than Cyrillic for Turkic texts. Uh, part of Chicharin's job was to enforce a new script on his Kyrgyz people. I guess you'd call it a form of cultural enslavement, perhaps. But soon we see, quote, on sidewalks and walls, the very first printed slogans start to show up. The first central agent FU signs, the first kill the police commissioner signs. And somebody does. This alphabet is really something. And so the magic that the shamans out in the wind have always known begins to operate now in a political way, end quote. So ironically, this imposed language is also giving them a new voice, a powerful voice. Chicharin and Zakip Kulan ride into a village in time to hear a singing duel, rather like a modern day rap battle. And then the chapter ends with a beautiful song sung about the Kyrgyz light. Now that chapter was so interesting, it makes me think about the conflict and oppressive power of language. We then go on, back with Slotherop. He's ill in Berlin, having drunk the water. He finds the Schwarzkommando, who are uncovering an unexploded V2. The Schwarzkommando, Oberst, says he's only here, quote, in a statistical way. Something like that rock over there is just about 100% certain. It knows it's there. So does everybody else. But our own chances of being right here, right now, are only a little better than even the slightest shift in the probabilities, and we're gone, snap, like that, end quote. And he relates how 40 years previously they were exterminated on a whim by a, quote, scrupulous butcher named von Trotha. The thumb of mercy never touched his scales, end quote. Such dark humour from Pynchon. A burst continues by teaching Slotherop as scuffling, Ian scuffling, the word mbakair, which means, quote, I am passed over. To those of us who survived von Trotha, it also means that we have learned to stand outside our history and watch it without feeling too much, a little schizoid, end quote. A burst makes a wonderful comparison between his people and the V2. Quote, one reason the Bakayere, it means we grew so close to the rocket, I think was this sharp awareness of how contingent like ourselves, the aggregate four, that's the V2, could be. How at the mercy of small things, Dust that gets in a timer and breaks electrical contacts. A film of grease you can't even see. Oil from a touch of human fingers left inside a liquid oxygen valve, flaring up soon as the stuff hits and setting the whole thing off. I've seen that happen. Rains that swell the bushings in the servos or leaks into a switch. Corrosion, a short, a signal grounded out. Brenchless too soon. And what was alive is only an aggregate again. An aggregate of pieces of dead matter no longer anything that can move or that has a destiny with a shape. Stop doing that with your eyebrows scuffling. I may have gone a bit native out here, that's all. Stay in the zone long enough and you'll start getting ideas about destiny yourself. Now Slotherop spies a strange symbol from a V2 rocket. I'm not sure if you've ever read The Crying of Lot 49, but these strange typographical symbols that are beginning to appear in the narrative remind me very much of that book. Schwartz Commando are uncovering the bomb. Its serial number is not triple zero, however, which very much upsets the recoverers. And so they're both really looking for the same bomb. Slotherup meets up with Greta, Saude, Magda and Trudy. Don't ask how just yet. It's not really that well explained. Maybe it'll be explained later. He's christened the Rocket Man and they go to a club where there's a lot of wonderful songs and there's a great song called The Do Doper's Dream. 
sung by Seamus Bodine, which if there's time, I will read out later. Slotherop is asked to go to Potsdam where the Allied Conference to work out the division of Germany is now taking place. He's asked to retrieve six kilos of hashish that Bodine has buried there for one of the kilos and a million counterfeit marks printed by Saure. He agrees. The next day, Saure tells Slotherop where Bodine's hash is buried. As he's searching for the hash, we have a heartbreaking description of the destruction wrought by war. Quote, and this is Berlin. Smooth facets of buildings have given way to cobbly insides of concrete blasted apart. All the endless pebbled rococo just behind the shuttering inside is outside. Seamless rooms open to the sky. Wallless rooms pitched out over the sea of ruins in prows, in crow's nests. Old men with their tins searching the ground for cigarette butts wear their lungs on their breasts. End quote. Inside is outside. What a horrific idea about the destruction of war. Now, Sare tells Slotherup how a vital ingredient to test the validity of cocaine was used in the German rocket program that disrupted the cocaine industry. And when Slotherup asks whether Sare has heard of the Schwarzgrat, he tells him to talk to a Der Springer, who he says, quote, could be any place, he is everywhere. Not particularly helpful, I don't think. Slotherop is going to pretend he is a vaudeville entertainer called Max Schlepzig in order to secure these drugs. He finds the hash and is discovered by none other than Mickey Rooney, the famous American actor, but he escapes and then, dun dun dun. Just before the end of this half, he is caught. He has been followed all the way. Quote, others have grabbed Slotherop's arms. High in the left one, he feels something sharp, almost painless, very familiar. Before his throat can stir, he's away on the wheel, clutching in terror to the dwindling white point of himself in the first wind rush of anaesthesia, hovering coyly over the pit of death. I guess he's being tranquilized. I really hope he hasn't been killed. There we are, end of the first half. What a ride, my word. So, first half impressions. Well, it's a very strange and difficult read. Lots and lots of acronyms and points of view that constantly change and diverge that make the narrative difficult to follow. But I think that is the nature of the subject material. War is confusing. War doesn't make any sense. It's violent and disorientating, just like the narrative. The novel certainly has some powerful ideas about war, the destruction of the war, the desperation of war. I'd like to share with you just a few of the ideas that really stood out for me on this initial read of the first half of the novel. But first of all, there's a few questions. Will Slotherop find this mythical triple zero bomb? Will he get to the bottom of what Escarat is? Will he recover Bodine's hashish? And what has happened to him? Has he been tranquilized and will he escape? So, as I say, some really interesting ideas to come out of this novel so far. The novel teaches so much about the nature and horror of war, as I mentioned. We're exposed to the white visitation, a group of people that, to my mind, are so desperate to find answers to the erratic and random behaviour of the rockets that they will resort to a variety of pseudo-scientific and irrational modes of gathering information. The seances, the mind-reading, the Pavlovian response analysis, all desperate attempts to try to have some kind of control over the barbaric bombardment that cannot be controlled or predicted. Also, the novel is almost structured in a seemingly random and haphazard way that seems to echo this randomness and disruption of war. Although there is a strong narrative thread throughout the novel, often it is articulated at a surface level in a very obscure way. The character's point of view changes and moves from first person to second person narration, for example. It's very destabilizing for me, and I think Pynchon is trying to describe the chaos of war using this structure. Structure here informs and sheds a revealing light on the content. There's a very sad quote where the true nature of war is revealed to be commercial and market-oriented. It's early on in the novel, page 124 in my copy. Quote, the mass nature of wartime death is useful in many ways. It serves as spectacle, as diversion from the real movements of the war. It provides raw material to be recorded into history so that children may be taught history as sequences of violence, battle after battle, and be more prepared for the adult world. Best of all, mass deaths are stimulus to just ordinary folks, little fellows, to try and grab a piece of that pie 
while they are still here to gobble it up. The true war is a celebration of markets. Organic markets, carefully styled black by the professionals, spring up everywhere. Scrip, Sterling, Reichsmarks continue to move, severe as classical ballet, inside their antiseptic marble chambers. But out here, down here among the people, the truer currencies come into being. So Jews are negotiable. Every bit is negotiable as cigarettes or Hershey bars. What a horrific indictment of war. And the poverty of war is articulated through that moving description of Lenny Puckler and her baby, abandoned by her chemical engineer husband Fritz when he works for the rocket program. Quote, Lenny is immediately aware of her drab coat and cotton dress, hemline too high, her scuffed and city-dusted shoes, her lack of jewellery, more middle-class reflexes, vestiges, she hopes. And the fact that that poor baby has no milk. Throughout the novel, we get these quite scientific explanations as to the process of things. I love the way that the narrator applies these ideas to real world events, in particular as the scientific trajectory of the rockets through the ideas of backward symmetries and hidden centers. Katya immediately picks up on these ideas of backward symmetries when the narrator is explaining the trajectory of rockets. Quote, to get a distance from acceleration, the rocket had to integrate twice needed a moving coil, transformers, electrolytic cell, a bridge of diodes, one tetrode, an extra grid to screen away capacitive couplings inside the tube, an elaborate dance of design precautions to get to what human eyes saw first of all, the distance along the flight path. There was that backward symmetry again, one that pointsman missed but Katya didn't. A life of its own, she said. Continuing this idea, we learn about the Brenschless point, the point in the rocket's trajectory when the fuel cuts out. Pynchon imagines Etzel Osh imagining these hidden centers and things. Quote, the double integral stood in Etzel Osh's subconscious for the method of finding hidden centers. Inertia is unknown, as if monoliths had been left for him in the twilight, left behind by some corrupted idea of civilization, in which eagles cast in concrete stand 10 meters high at the corners of the stadiums where the people, a corrupted idea of the people, are gathering, in which birds do not fly, in which imaginary centers far down inside the solid fatality of stone are thought of, not as heart, plexus, consciousness, the voice speaking here grows more ironic, closer to tears, which are not all theatre, as the list goes on. Sanctuary, dream of motion, cyst of the eternal present, or gravity's grey eminence among the councils of the living stone. No, as none of these, but instead a point in space, a point hung precise as the point where burning must end, never launched, never to fail. The idea of outside and inside really reminds me of inner and outer from Howard's End. Quote, Kevin Spectro did not differentiate as much as he, pointsman, between outside and inside. He saw the cortex as an interface organ mediating between the two, but part of them both. When you've looked at how it really is, he asked once, how can we, any of us, be separate? I was quite alarmed by the old-fashioned, almost mystical idea that the inner can affect the outer. The narrator early on in the novel states that, quote, an informer whose guilt will sicken one day to throat cancer. Very supernatural thinking. This idea of outer and inner could also be paired perhaps with the idea of reality versus data. There's definitely a conflict exposed between experience witness, possibly the outer, and data constructed, possibly the inner within the book. Quote, what are these data if not direct revelation? Where have they come from if not from the rocket which is to be? How do you presume to compare a number you have only derived on paper with a number that is the rocket's own? Avoid pride and design to some compromise value. Certainly a book of opposites. The Herrera people are contrasted with the Nazis here. Nazis are keen on data. The Herrera are interested in actual experience, possibly. There were some very interesting ideas on colonialism. I've already mentioned in my summary the idea of teaching a language in order to subjugate or enslave a population. The narrator also makes reference to a colony being an almost expression of the baser side of the human psyche, a loud expression. Listen to this quote around a quarter of the way into the novel. Apologies to Pynchon, but I've sanitised some of the language. Quote, colonies are the outhouses of the European soul where a fellow can let his pants down and relax, enjoy the smell of his own excrement where he can fall on his slender prey roaring as loud as he feels like and gobble her blood with open joy. Eh? Where he can just wallow and rut and let himself go in a softness, 
a receptive darkness of limbs, of hair as woolly as the hair on his own forbidden genitals, where the poppy and cannabis and cocoa grow full and green, and not to the colours and style of death as do ergo and agaric. The blight and fungus native to Europe. Christian Europe was always death, Karl. He's referencing Marx here. Death and repression, out and down in the colonies, life can be indulged, life and sensuality in all its forms, with no harm done to the metropolis. Nothing to soil those cathedrals, white marble statues, noble thoughts, no word ever gets back. The silences down here are vast enough to absorb all behaviour, no matter how dirty, how animal it gets. One interesting view of colonialism. One that I hadn't really considered to quite the extent that this narrator has. The idea that vice can occur in a colony so that it leaves no impression on the motherland. I think the idea of this rocket being a, a metaphor for masculinity is an interesting one. It's put most simply by the narrator during Indian's history. Quote, it began when Weissman Blacero brought him to Europe. A discovery that love among these men, once past the simple feel and orgasming of it, had to do with masculine technologies, with contracts, with winning and losing, demanded in his own case that he enter the service of the rocket. Beyond simple steel erection, the rocket was an entire system, one, away from the feminine darkness, held against the entropies of lovable but scatterbrained mother nature. That was the first thing he was obliged by Weissman to learn his first step towards citizenship in the zone. He was led to believe that by understanding the rocket, he would come to understand truly his manhood. And then we've got some humour all the way through the book, often very dark. On Slotherop's witch ancestor, Amy Sprue, the narrator says, quote, a family renegade turned antimonium at age 23 and running mad over the Berkshire countryside ahead of crazy Sue Dunham by 200 years, stealing babies, riding cows in the twilight, sacrificing chickens up on Snod's Mountain. Lot of ill will about those chickens, as you can imagine. And then the punchline. The cows and babies always somehow came back all right. Amy Sprue was not like young Skipping Dorothy's antagonist, a mean witch. And what about that escape in the hot air balloon with Schnorr, the custard pie salesman, and fighting off planes with custard pies? There are so many of these strange comedic scenarios in the book. Just the final point, it's very, very British. Apart from the wine candies, I'm very impressed with the author's attention to detail, getting so many details of the British way of life. The weather, the look of London, the Thames, it's very, very impressive. What were the key ideas of the book for you? I'd love to hear them. Please send me your comments. There were some wonderful reviews on Goodreads and on the web about Howard's End. I'd just like to quote, This book is a really interesting study of class, things we take for granted and the role money plays in our vision of the world. It made me want to push the ragged trousered philanthropist to the top of my to-read pile to get more political perspective on the subject, as both books take place in the first decade of the 20th century. The characters see classes as a sort of people, and would probably find the very word class distasteful. But the very distance they insist on putting between themselves and others based on their arbitrary standards of wealth and education and how this distance can improve or worsen some people's living conditions is touching and thought-provoking. It's a fantastic book, and the gorgeous Merchant Ivory adaptation is well worth watching. I enjoy both immensely and recommend them all to fans of British literature. And Yulia on Goodreads wrote... I just couldn't understand the connection formed between Margaret and Henry. Was it meant to be a surprise to the reader? Because if so, Forster was successful. But then, even in Passage to India, I couldn't understand the friendship at the core of the book. So perhaps this was not as intentional as he'd like us to believe. Coincidentally, Zadie Smith, who modelled on beauty on this work, seems to have inherited Forster's inability to create a marriage that is in any way believable. As for the manslaughter conviction, it didn't seem right to me considering the nature of the death, but I have no legal training and certainly no knowledge of the British system, so I speak only as a would-be juror. Forster does get a very real component of human relationships in noting that pity can inspire tenderness, compassion and even love, but I think it's over-simplistic to say women react one way to the flaws of a partner and men another. In their context, generalities don't tend to rankle me so much, but when taken from their surrounding cushioning, they're quite ridiculous. I do think that the narrator was omniscient and every now and then steps into the mind of a character, whether male or female, and records their thoughts without putting these thoughts in italics or quotation marks. That's the only way to explain the random moments in which the narrator seems to have a woman's perspective instead of a general unisex one. 
Why else would force to have a narrator of a different sex and not develop her perspective and societal standing more fully? Is she an intellectual, an aristocrat? But how is this discussion making me rethink my admiration of Forster? As it is, I'm hearing my own doubts about the book reflected in others' comments. Who knew I wasn't alone in my cynicism? And Micah Cummins on Goodreads said, quote, Thoroughly enjoyed this beautiful novel by Ian Forster. The pace is slow, much slower than the modern reader may be comfortable with. However, for those who are fans of slower quality plots, this will not disappoint. The conflict in the book builds slowly but with confidence, and each of the characters is relatable in their own way. This is a novel I will be coming back to in the near future. Highly recommended, five stars. Thanks very much for these comments. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Leave a comment below, or if you're listening to the podcast, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Maybe there's been a book sitting on your shelf for ages that you haven't got around to reading. You just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I publish part two of Gravity's Rainbow in three weeks, that's the 29th of July, August podcast will be all about Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead by Olga Tokarczuk, translated by Antonia Lloyd-Jones. So get that one at the ready if you can. Also, if you enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe or give it five stars on your podcast app. Thank you very much. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the final part of Gravity's Rainbow in three weeks. See you then. Mm-hmm.